Hello and welcome to Josh Coleman's podcast, a place to have inspired conversation with interesting people. Hey everyone. Today I get to sit with Justin Andrews, a very close friend of mine, and we're going to talk about the psychedelic renaissance. He is the co-founder of the Halifax Psychedelic Society. He is a professionally trained chef and a student at Dalhousie University studying sustainability and sociology. Justin and I have been super close for a long time and have talked about doing a podcast for a long time. So in a lot of ways, this is the fulfillment of that. Enjoy. Hey, Justin. How you doing, brother? Good, man. Good. Thanks for uh, having me to talk about this. Well, we've talked about being on a podcast now for, I don't know, a year? Yeah, like maybe more. Yeah, we've been discussing the idea of a podcast, and I know that you're about to launch one yourself, and I know that I've just le- recently launched it like two months ago, so it just feels like the perfect opportunity to sit down with a friend. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, the, the big topic we're going to talk about today is going to be psychedelics, and specifically an organization you're a part of called the Psychedelic Society. Do yeah. you want to tell me more about that? Yeah, so I'm one of the co-founders of the Halifax Psychedelic Society. Um the psychedelic societies are something that are starting to pop up in cities really all across the world. It's becoming a really international movement. Um, I've been interested in psychedelics most of my life from my early teens onward. And uh, there's a really lovely website called airwid.org that I found as, as, that, a, yeah. as a young teen, which uh, has a lot of experience reports of people on various substances. And I used to read through that as a, as a kid, and I was always interested. And then one day, there was a link for an event in New York, a psychedelic conference. And I was like, what? Like, pe- there's conferences about these things? Like, I really wasn't aware of what was happening in the scientific community with these things. It hadn't really gone mainstream yet. Um, it was really only, like, alternative media and the kind of counterculture that was talking about psychedelics. So... Um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go. So I booked a flight to New York and I went to this conference. Uh, It's called Horizons, Perspectives on Psychedelics. Um, It's an annual conference that happens in Manhattan. So I went to the conference and I was really almost shocked to hear that the research was uh, beginning again. You know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there was a lot of scientific research happening with LSD, with psilocybin mushrooms, with mescaline from peyote cactus. Um, but when the war on drugs rolled through and, and um, a lot of propaganda from mostly probably the United States government really um, slowed down, if not stopped, the research into these things. And over the past, you know, 10 years-ish, it's really been starting to, to reemerge. Um, So that was really interesting to see. And something else that I saw was this notion of a psychedelic society. And I was like, what? Psychedelic society? What is that? And I think every city is a little different what that means. But there was this presence in a city to provide a platform for people to seek support, get information, feel that solidarity that you're not, you know, on your own. Um... Now, without incriminating myself, um, I've had some experiences that were difficult, um, but I didn't have those resources at the time. Mm -hmm. And things got really dark for me, and they got dark for some friends of mine, too. I've really seen how uh, psychedelics can really impact somebody's mental health if they don't have means to integrate it and a means to 
communicate those experiences without being stigmatized for doing so. So I was just like, yeah, we need one of these in Halifax. Like, we need a psychedelic society. And I made some connections with uh, directors of other chapters, and they uh, supported me on, on how to get started here. And that was about two years ago that I was at that conference. So um, it's been slowly building. Um, we're still in the beginning stages. Um, we'd like to be an actual registered nonprofit within the next year. That's our goal. I've, I've noticed um, you guys are presenting in, at the Halifax Public Library, for example. Mm-hmm. That's awesome that you have such um, access, I guess you could say, to with public support as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's something we've tried to do on the integration side is give people a place to talk about these things. So those feelings and emotions aren't just festering inside of themselves or in their small community of friends that they can actually uh, talk to these things about. Um, psychedelics are taboo. Um, they have been, you know, for a really long time. And I think there's this notion of it being this hippie thing or, you know, this like woo woo spiritual thing. But, you know, we're in this period that a lot of people are calling, you know, the psychedelic renaissance and the information about psychedelics is really starting to go mainstream over the past like year or two. Um, you know, New York times, best-selling author Michael Pollan just put out a book, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Um, that's going to get read by a lot of people that, uh, you know, aren't tapped into the alternative media sources. Um, the Medical Post, a mainstream medical journal, front cover, there was a How Psilocybin Mushrooms Might Help with Depression. Um the Guardian, uh, even local to here, the Chronicle Herald had a, a front page article about magic mushrooms. So this information has hit the mainstream and, and people are now talking about it. So although the taboos may still be there, these conversations are happening. So that's why we felt it was really important to have a public presence talking about these things, but bringing a more educated perspective to the table and it not just being this like, oh, people are doing drugs. It's like there's there's something a little more to it than that. Um, in terms of the benefits, because we're going to talk about the benefits and the negatives and what integration means, what sort of benefits do you think that people have? Why are people so interested in exploring these mind-altering substances? Yeah, you know, that that one I think is a, is a tough question. So some some of the benefits, I guess that are being shown with these research studies that are happening again. Um, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder are, are two huge um, avenues for research and, and show a lot of promise. Um, John Hopkins University is studying uh, psilocybin for depression and also um, uh, people that have terminal illnesses and they're facing, you know, death. Um, they're undergoing these psilocybin mm -hmm. treatments as a means to be more okay with, yeah. with dying. And they're having huge, huge success rates. Um, with MDMA, the research has something like, you know, 80, in the 80s of percent of, of people that go through the treatment are no longer qualifying as having PTSD. That's so fucking cool. You know, it, yeah. they're literally, and you, you know, I'm, I don't have a science background, but it, but it seems to be that these substances help you confront your, your, your deep rooted issues mm -hmm. 
in a way that therapy on its own just can't get to. Well, as a person, first of all, I've done lots of psychedelics in my life. That's been a big part of my, my life and my explorations of my consciousness. But as a person who's into meditation, anything that can take us out of our perspective that is routinized in other words like this is just who i am and it's a routine and mm-hmm. I'm, I, there's something has to something has to get thrown as a way to shift that consciousness and psychedelics are absolutely a way that does that you know absolutely. like yeah and that's uh, and it's with meditation maybe you have to work really really hard to achieve certain states outside of your own perception and psychedelics kind of just go whoop now you're there well you know it's funny you you mentioned that because um I can't remember who said it right now, but uh, there was a little video about psychedelics that was circulating through Facebook. And one of the things they said was people have found ways to reach these altered states of consciousness forever, whether it's meditation, fasting, drumming, sweat lodges, you name it. Um, but what this person said with, with psychedelics is... Um, Fasting for 40 days is like burning your house down to bake a loaf of bread. Right. (laughs) There are quicker ways to get there that are less painful, less torturous to the body. Um, I heard of a a tribe somewhere in South America that takes these vines with with a... they, They... shave the end off so they're sharp, they pierce their tongue with it, and they pull it through their tongue, ripping a hole through their tongue to induce visions. And, you know, they would commune with yeah. with the higher entities, but then they'd be speechless for the rest of their life. And those people would go on to be, you know, elders and, and you know, spiritual leaders in those communities because they've had these experiences. But that's an instance where, you know, you're burning your house down to bake a loaf of bread. Right. Um, there are other ways we're learning we have these tools to to access and i think it's important to to view these these psychedelic substances as tools and not as recreational drugs so some of the things i'm going to be talking about here are not the stereotypical festival culture where somebody takes acid and goes dancing although people have had transformative experiences in those types of contexts um I think it's important to distinguish the difference between recreational and intentional use. Doesn't mean that you can't have intentional recreational use, but there is a level of irresponsibility that does exist in the recreational use. Well, so let's talk about the, we talked about the positives. Let's talk about the potential negatives. Okay. What happens when people maybe aren't using it for the purposes of transformation? Yeah. So with these notions of psychedelics being potentially helpful for depression and different things, I see a rise in what I call self-prescription. So somebody reads an article that says magic mushrooms can help cure depression. They get some mushrooms, they do them in their apartment thinking it can cure their depression. That can be really dangerous. Um, I think it's important to understand that the the treatments using these psychedelics are very extensive. They're very intentional. Um, you're with two therapists while you're under the influence. You see the therapist before. You set your intentions. There's a follow-up session to integrate that experience. You know, you're using 
the substance as a tool to really get to the core of, of your depression. Um, when you do things, you know, on your own willy nilly, you don't necessarily get to that same place. And, and not to say you can't, I've gotten there on my own. I've had some really healing experiences, but it can be really dangerous to just dive in. If you're um, not prepared for it and if, it, mm-hmm. you're, if you're doing it because someone said it is the cure and so you're not just like, wow, I really feel genuinely like I really want to try this, but this might be the answer to my cure and you kind of grasp a little, then that, that could be too fast too soon. And it's, it's the, you know, we live in a culture where we love band-aid solutions for things. We love to have a magic bullet and psychedelics are, you know, not a magic bullet, but they're, they're powerful. And I think it's important to go into the experience grounded and asking and realizing like, why, why are you doing this? Um, if you're really intentional about it and you're going into it, uh, with, with the right intentions and you've done your research, you know, there's, there's so much research out there into, um, how these substances affect us now and how to create the right set and setting, etc. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I just want to, yeah, that, that notion that it can be really dangerous to just dive in, especially if you don't have the means to, to integrate. So that, that follows directly into this notion of integration. So where these substances still are taboo in many circles, if you have a very strange experience, you know, psychedelics can get weird. You know, if you have some <laughs> weird experience where, you know, you talk to your cactus and you know, your cactus talked back to you and maybe you thought you talked to God or you thought you were God. That comes up a lot. Um, This communion with something higher. When you kind of come back down and you have a limited number of people you can share that with, I think that's where the danger lies. Um, The psychedelic experience can be difficult. And I don't think the danger lies in the experience itself. Um, many of these substances don't really pose to what the limited research is, but they don't appear to pose physical harm to the body. But, you know, if you have a very strange experience and you can't integrate that, that's going to fester and that's going to cause some issues. I did want to share a personal experience. Um, Mm -hmm. my first time taking LSD, I think I was about 22 and I did have the the God experience and which was so beautiful. I mean, the type of love and the type of connection was unreal. I never experienced anything like it, but because I wasn't really prepared myself for it and I didn't have anyone that I could talk to, it ended up being that actually I really scared the shit out of a lot of my friends and Mm. the intensity with which I was speaking, like it was like, this is the way this is the case ended up actually putting a lot of people off and isolating me and all that kind of stuff. Then I learned meditation and I started doing mental uh, transformational practices outside of that and learned how to ground myself, how to see that even really wonderful experiences are experiences, not the end reality, but experiences within a context of reality, mm-hmm. grounded myself. And it's cool because since then I've actually had a number of really great LSD experiences, but with the preparation beforehand of being grounded and with the ability to integrate afterwards with friends and community and stuff. And so I totally see the difference between those two things. 
saying that you're going to do it in a clinical setting is like one step up from that in terms of the therapeutic and the uh, uh, the potential, at least for these transformational experiences too. Yeah. Um, so I, I can see on the whole spectrum of where... <laughs> Where it could be negative, where it could be neutral, where it could be positive, and how to do things in more professional and less professional ways, too. Yeah. So speaking on that notion of the professionalization and the clinical settings, that's an area I want to provide a critique. Um, the path that psychedelics are taking, um, particularly uh, psilocybin and MDMA, they may likely become legal treatments for potentially alcoholism, tobacco addiction, opiate addiction, PTSD, depression. Um, various substances are being studied for a couple of these kind of areas. But this path of medicalization could end up having these substances being legal under specific circumstances and still illegal under others. So... Let's say psilocybin gets legalized for depression. That's going to be one expensive treatment. Hmm. The way they're being studied, you know, therapy session with two therapists, there's usually a male-female kind of duo. Um, and, you know, you're high for eight plus hours. The sessions before, the sessions after, you know, you're looking at maybe up to 20 hours of therapy with two therapists plus all the safety precautions that go into this. That like, sounds expensive. How many thousands of dollars <laughs> is a healing session going to be, you know? And like with, with PTSD, like 80 something percent of participants, like not having PTSD anymore, especially like targeting the, the veterans, you know, this is posing this like magic, I hate to use the word magic bullet, but it's almost being framed as this magic bullet of, MDMA can just take away PTSD and these soldiers, these veterans don't have it anymore. Um, but are marginalized people going to be able to ever afford these treatments? Is this something that is becoming like a new fancy bourgeois medicine? I think it's a and, really good question. And, and I, I really fear that, that it is. Um, so the legalization taking the medical path is one notion, but something I'd like to talk about and is one of our really key values of the Halifax Psychedelic Society is the notion of decriminalization. Mm. So Portugal, um, over 10 years ago now, might even be up to 15 years ago, decriminalized all drugs all across the board. Um, now that's personal consumption levels. Um, if you're trafficking, that can still be a criminal offense depending on the substance, but on the individual level, if you're caught with substances, you're not criminalized. You're not given a criminal record. It's not going to ruin your life to prevent you from having jobs and all the things that could come along with that. And it's viewed more in the public health sector than it is the criminal sector. So, you know, psychedelics don't really have the same addiction potential as something like opiates, but if you're caught with, you know, heroin or something, you're given support. You're um, you can be put into programs to help you through that. And I think that's something that we should consider here. Um, and I think there's room for both, you know, maybe there could be decriminalized use plus this legal medical treatment that hopefully will become affordable. Um, because what I fear is psilocybin being legal in one context, 
but then somebody using it on their own could still get arrested right. for it. That and and, and that just really doesn't make or me feel good. Or as you said, uh, denial of access to just simply by not having money, which exactly. a lot of people who are traumatized don't have money. Like that's like not that's not totally true, sorry, that's kind of a weird statement. But a lot of the people that need this help the most are not necessarily the people that have Absolutely. the have the, the resources financially or they have the parents that will pay for it or the insurance plans or whatever the fuck they're gonna end up using. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and with the Halifax Psychedelic Society, our, what we're really trying to do is, is build a platform to bring a lot of different voices of this issue to the same place and allow these conversations to happen. Because, you know, this is new stuff. This is uncharted territory, you know? Like, th- and, and the, the issue is, is so much larger than we could ever get to the, to the bottom of in, in, you know, an hour chat. Um, but it's one that's only going to become talked about more and more and more. Like it's growing in popularity. It's getting more attention. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to read off from our website. Um, and anybody listening, um, our website's just HalifaxPsychedelicSociety.com. Um, and I have some other resources that we'll, uh, we'll plug in at the end. Um, but our, our main goal is to really build bridges. Uh, we believe that it's an important time to have a platform on which we can have a safe and open conversation about psychedelics. With mainstream media picking up on ongoing research into psychedelics as potential healing tools, and with the failures of the drug war, conversations about substances are going to spread. We aim to link together researchers, policymakers, educators, and everyday people to create a culture of understanding and responsibility. We host events where we educate people about drug harm reduction share ongoing scientific research, and discuss possible futures, and facilitate the sharing of people's psychedelic experiences, both difficult and wonderful. It is time for society to stop pushing psychedelic users and discussions underground, and time we create space to transform what was once a taboo topic into one of acceptance and growth. Um, So, that's great. you know, just to kind of summarize, you know, we really trying to pull everybody together, you know? We want to interact with the scientific community and know what the science tells us. I think research is a beautiful thing. Well, I think what you're really saying there is that for a long time, this is relegated into hippie communities yeah. and people who are on the fringe. And if we can all work together, even with the mainstream and even with scientists, we have a better chance at yielding the transformational results for many people rather than uh, relegated to certain small sections of society. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to bring the voices of the scientific community to people that will, you know, write future policy when it comes to yes. drug laws. Yeah, great point. But the scientific community isn't the only voice that matters. We also need the voice of people who've been through these experiences outside of the scientific context. If their voices aren't represented at the table, the the movement is not going as far as as it could because then it's more theoretical it's just theoretical and you know um i and that's why the the community building is such a core part of of what we want to do and provide a platform for those voices to be heard because you know there's a lot of people that would love to share their experiences and their stories with these substances but they're they worry about the stigma and incriminating themselves. Absolutely. You know, to be, to, to say, I had this crazy mushroom trip, you just labeled yourself a criminal. Yeah. Um, and 
I think that's something that, that needs to shift. And, and if we go towards a decriminalization model, more people can come out of the closet, so to speak. So just one, one thing on that also, um, with the scientific and decriminalization in combination, because I was going to say legalization, but again, that's a touch and go thing. We just saw what was happening with weed with that. And there's kind of like negative areas, but, um, uh, for example, I enjoy MDMA a couple times a year and, Right now, there's such a strong fear in the air about it being laced with with shitty things. Yeah. And so the one thing that would be really good if we had scientific rigor up to speed is that we would learn, be able to test these things a lot easier. Yeah. And that would be better. It really would be to understand that at least we're having pure the purest versions of these things that we can. So totally. we're not going to affect our health negatively. And that that's a really good area to to jump into this notion of harm reduction. Um, so. When you have a black market for drugs, there's no accountability. You go to your dealer and you're buying what you think to be MDMA. It could be one of dozens of substances. Um, you know, in the past, it might have been speed, um, might have been a combination of speed and MDMA. Now there are all these synthetic substances that can be quite toxic that have really tainted the drug supply. Mm -hmm. And the illegal market has opened up this notion of uh, research chemicals. You can go online with your credit card and buy these research chemicals that are various substances that are not illegal because they're new. They haven't been scheduled yet. They haven't been gone through the process with, you know, organizations like the DEA um, and often what happens is slight modifications to an illegal substance will be made. So effects are still in the same kind of realm of effects, but because it's a different chemical, it's not technically, illegal. not technically illegal. Yeah. Now, the way they get away with it is they sell them as non for human consumption for research purposes only. And that gives them that, uh, release of liability. So these, chemists can sell these substances onto the market, but as a drug dealer, you can buy a random research chemical, put it in pill capsules and sell it as MDMA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, ecstasy is the kind of like slang word for MDMA. MDMA is the actual chemical that's specific to that, or molly is another one of those slang terms. Molly now could be tainted with so many different things or combinations of different things, some being quite toxic. So. Harm reduction exists on, 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 on many different levels. One of those is uh, testing your substances. So there are testing kits available that you can buy online. They're legal to buy the testing kits. Um, comes in these little bottles with little drops. You take a sample of your drugs and you can see what colors it changes. And really with that, what you can do is you can rule out some of the more toxic substances. Um, they're not perfect, they're not 100% accurate, but they can just provide a little bit more of a, of a safe approach to using substances. Um, there's organizations like Dance Safe that puts out great information about partying safely, everything from being hydrated to drug testing. Um, they also sell the drug testing kits, you can order them online. That's great. Um, so by testing your substance before you use it, you can... Uh, yeah, just potentially prevent some harm that could come from that. Um, but harm reduction comes into other, other forms as well. So 
um, like I briefly mentioned earlier, being grounded before you go into a psychedelic experience, asking why are you doing this? You know, are you doing it just to get fucked up at a party? If that's the case, like, you know, that, that poses dangers. Mm -hmm. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, I, I don't recommend, I don't recommend somebody taking substances willy nilly just to have fun. Um, you know, you can, you can get into, into trouble that way. So creating the right set and setting is important. Um, do your research. You know, the internet is a beautiful thing. Like go online and read about these things. What are the safe dosage ranges? What are the effects? What are the side effects? What type of responses in the body should you be concerned of if you start noticing them? Mm -hmm. You know, like if you have a really fast heartbeat and you're freaking out, think you're dying, you're probably not dying. You're probably just a little too high, mm -hmm. but there are, we, we can educate ourselves to know. And in that same way, if you see a friend going through a hard time, if you've done your research before, you can also, um, you know, know when you might need to seek help and when you just need to, yeah. you know, ride out the experience. And also how to, I know there's so many situations where you just have to say, you know what, brother, sister, you're going to be fine. Let's just sit here together and make exactly. sure we're in a nice, safe space, have some water. Yeah. <laughs> like, what else do you need? Do you need me to tell you again that it's going to be okay? You know, like that type of, that's mm -hmm. in harm reduction spaces, especially at festivals is what I've observed the most. I do find that mostly it's just really calm people, very loving people who are making sure that people are nice and grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and nice and warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the harm reduction of festivals is interesting, and it really varies from country to country, even province or state to state. Um, so here we have the Tea Hive Collective. They set up a beautiful dome where, if anybody you know going through a rough time has a safe place to go, um, we communicate directly with security and with the medical teams. So if if there are issues, you know, we're all in compliance with one another. Um, but it's interesting in, in the, in the UK, the, a lot of the big festivals now have legal drug testing facilities on site. That's so, so important. you know, this is happening here in one ways with these little like dropper tests that I just mentioned, but in the UK, some of the festivals actually have like trained chemists with laboratory equipment actually testing these substances and identifying much more impurities and at first there was backlash. There was this I was notion. Say, I know there was, yeah. And that happens here. So there's this notion of harm reduction can come off as promoting substance use. I disagree wholeheartedly. Um, harm reduction saves lives. Mm -hmm. um, in the UK, they, you know, went through these troubles for years, but they got to a point where they realized that when they were on site less deaths and injuries happen at festivals. So they're now in direct compliance with the police. The police are accepting of these services now. People can go and get their substance tested. They wait an hour or two, they come back, get the result, and they might say, hey, that's actually 100% pure MDMA. It was more potent than you thought. Take a lower dose. And then the person goes, oh, I was going to take two of these, but I should only take one. Thanks. Or you get told it's not MDMA, it's actually this other chemical that's not researched well and it could be dangerous. And they have a means to dispose of these things. So somebody may, be, may say, 
thank you for telling me it's something else. I'm not going to take it now. It's hard to imagine a world where that would be refuted. It just, right? Education is always important. And right? they're made to feel safe. The police are not waiting for these people to show up so they can arrest them. Like, the police step back. They're there if there's violence, if there's theft, etc. When it comes to the drug use in these places, they've realized that it's best to take a step back and, and let it happen and let these harm reduction services happen. And I was at a conference um, called Beyond Psychedelics in Prague, and this woman from the UK that, uh, it's called The Loop, they, they run these harm reduction drug testing services at festivals, and they had like hundreds of people throw away their substances when they were told it was the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and there was other people that said, you know what, I'm still going to do it anyways, but I'm going to take less of a dose because I'm not sure how I'm going to respond. So it creates a little bit more responsibility, but it also helps foster accountability. Mm-hmm. So if your dealer sold you Molly that wasn't actually MDMA... You can call them out now. Yeah. And you can be like, hey, I had this laboratory tested. <laughs> yeah. It was actually whatever other substance. Yeah. And maybe he didn't know. Maybe he got it from his guy. But it almost fosters the self-regulation within the drug world. Because there aren't... The black market, there's no regulations. There's no accountability. But that can be fostered through these harm reduction services. That's so, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, harm reduction is, uh, is a big one. It's a very optimistic approach. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, one other thing that we were going to talk about was the notion of peer pressure, which is okay. something that people have talked about regarding drugs, regarding drinking, regarding sex, regarding all these things forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of like, again, where we're going through a psychedelic uh, renaissance, it's probably going to be an important thing to talk about mm-hmm. all over again in this context. Yeah. Talk to me. So, yeah, peer pressure is totally part of this. Um, I think especially within the kind of new age, you know, spiritual communities. Um, I wish there was a better way to describe that community, but that just seems what fits. Hippie folk, people who are outside the fray, people who are experimenting outside of the bounds of society. Um, I think there's this notion that psychedelics are cool now. You know, it's like, oh, like what kind of experiences have you had? Like what drugs have you tried? What other realms and dimensions have you traveled to? Have you talked to God? Um, these are que- these are real questions that I've heard people ask mm-hmm. and I've had asked to me. Um, just this past winter, I was going down to Costa Rica for a month and I had a dozen or more friends ask me if I was going to do ayahuasca. Careful the table. Okay. Um, I had dozens of friends ask me if I was going to do ayahuasca, which wasn't part of my plan. Um, and I was kind of thrown back, you know, people know that I'm involved in the psychedelic society. They know that I have a lot of interest and passion here. Um, but it was almost like this expectation. It was like, are you going to do ayahuasca? Are you going to get that notch on your belt? Are you going to go through the notch notch on your belt is the perfect way to describe that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I have so many friends that have booked a flight to Peru and gone to an ayahuasca ceremony and they've had these mind blowing transformational experiences and I don't want to bad talk what ayahuasca can can do, but it's becoming this um, almost as a rite of passage in a weird way. It's like, have you done that thing yet? And that's another concern of mine. Mm-hmm. That's another danger, I think. 
you know... Like, are you really spiritual? Are you really a hippie? Are you really an anarchist kind of thing? You must have tried this yeah. or you have to try this. And, and I think there's people that aren't in that spiritual hippie mindset that do these things. Like, I think that there's, you know, um, CEOs of companies sure. that have done research and they have their own depression and they've learned... From the scientific perspective, they, they don't have the spiritual perspective, they have the scientific perspective that, oh, like, this is a potential treatment, I'm going to go down, I'm going to do this, you know, so there's a lot of people going down to these healing retreats, um, and a lot of people having really profound healing, but I think the danger lies in the peer pressure and the expectation to do so. Mm-hmm. And like, again, are you really whatever, then you have to, whatever, yeah. right? I mean, anytime that ever is the sentence, yeah. <laughs> we have to be super, super careful with that. And that's what it comes down to, do your research. Yeah. Read the science, but don't just read the science. Also read about the cultural use and the traditional use of these things. Are you being respectful of um, these these people that, you know, you're going to That's a whole other story, with? yeah. And, a whole uh, story. So, um yeah. yeah, it's super important, super important to remember, like, you can have a really great experience and you would want your friend to have it, but when they're ready, they're going to ask too. I think that's the most important part is to set up frameworks that there is safety in trying them if they want to, but not to push it too fast too soon because we all know what happens if you try drugs or anything too fast too soon. It can really blow your fucking mind. Yeah, <laughs> really can. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, there's one thing that I've been asking everybody at the end of these podcasts, mm-hmm. and it's just, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Sorry. Um, there, there's, yeah. Just, there's just one more, no, that's great. That's great. one more concern. Um, so, 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 so two final concerns. One of them, just very briefly, that you I'm going to plug in here, is that um, within the research and the growing literature around psychedelics, there is not a good representation of marginalized or racialized people or women for that matter. It's a lot of white men um, kind of leading the way through this research. And that's been a big critique that's been circulating through some of the psychedelic literature. Um, I'm just going to plug that in and and make sure that we're aware that... uh, So how would you address that? I don't know if I really have, you know, answers to that question i think some of the research is hard to get approved um and that goes into um you know just like the scientific research system in general and that i'm not well educated on um and 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 just every other aspects of our lives where we see um white men typically getting getting the same problem it's, it's the same problem it's just another area where the people getting heard are the people that normally always get heard um so, and here I am, a white dude talking about these things, you know, I need to acknowledge that, um, that for these substances to be fairly represented and to get a, a fair representation of, of what kind of tools they could be, we need to hear voices from, from all areas. I know that you, for example, are launching a podcast pretty soon. I would mm-hmm. imagine you'll probably focus on doing just that, right? Yeah, I'll yeah. do my best. Yeah. 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 Um, and the final concern I want to bring up with psychedelics is the notion of escapism. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah. So escapism, I think, is something that many of us are drawn to in a lot of different ways, whether it's... Um, you know, getting sucked into social media and being distracted from what you're, you know, you really should be doing, um, going on a Netflix binge, you know, you're just escaping the, 
your your priorities, you know, you're procrastinating. Um, we can use sex and other drugs. Um, people gamble. Um, people always find ways to kind of hide away into a place that feels good. Um, now, this can be really prominent in psychedelic use, especially where the psychedelic experience can last so long. Mm-hmm. And what may be eight hours in what I call consensus reality or consensus time can feel like an eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had experiences that felt like weeks went by within a couple hour period of time. So when you come back, so to speak, you know, the, the notion of like you're tripping, like you're literally going on a trip, you're going on a voyage, you're, you're in some instances going to another place for a period of time. So using these substances as an escape can be really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard people in my community, um, say things like, I'm stressed out. I need to get away. I'm going to do shrooms this weekend because I just need to unplug. Um, and I don't think that is all bad. You know, like we talked about the importance of, uh, intention and, um, some of those harm reduction principles, you know, if you've done your research and you're really intentional and there's like a specific reason you're doing this and it's planned, um, that can provide maybe benefits for somebody. Um, but it can also be dangerous, you know, escaping and, and not necessarily actually confronting what you're escaping from yeah. can, can be really dangerous, whether it's psychedelics or anything else. But people even use meditation to avoid confronting, uh, confronting what they need to on the inside. You know, like you can really, I think you can use anything as a form of escapism, but I love what you're saying. And I feel like as long as we're, you know, maybe the person does take mushrooms, but before the trip and after the trip, let's continue to be facing those things. It's not about yeah. trying to pretend things don't exist because we know what happens when we do that. Yeah. They're coming back. <laughs> um, and there's something I just want to yeah. plug in here that I uh, meant to mention at the beginning here. Um, just a little uh, disclaimer um, on behalf of, you know, myself as well as the Halifax Psychedelic Society. Um Although we believe psychedelic drugs should be decriminalized, we understand that in many places in the world, they are still currently illegal. We do not recommend that anyone break the law and encourage folks to research their local drug laws before consuming any substances. Um, We do not provide illegal substances or allow their use or distribution at any of our public events. Um, If anyone at one of our events is observed um, talking about sourcing drugs, selling drugs on site, they will be asked to leave. Um, you know, I really support the, uh, responsible use of substances, but I don't recommend anyone break the law. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just thought I'll plug that in there. I may as well just, uh, couple that with the same, same. <laughs> um, um, and what about these resources that you were talking about? The other okay. resources people can use to, to, to research. Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, Arrowhead is wonderful. You get a lot of, uh, there's like a huge, they call them the vaults. There's this vault, this database of books, um, online, like PDF copies of books that are free to access on all these topics. There's, 
people's own stories you can read of what they've been through on various substances. Some of them can be quite detailed. They provide safe dosage ranges, so you can, you know, if you are going to do something, you can figure out what's a threshold dose, mm -hmm. what's a medium dose, what's considered a dangerous dose, and you can be a little bit more responsible um, going into... Can you spell that website name? E-R-O-W-I-D dot org. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Symposia is wonderful. They're um, a media group that, that puts out anything from scientific literature to um, stories about, you know, changing drug policy to personal testimonies. They're really just like this really great group based in the States putting out some really cool articles and content. Um, and there's another one, uh, Chakruna. I'll have to... Uh, Maybe when you post this, if there's a spot That's for you to, yeah. to type in, because I don't remember the spelling, but Chakruna um, is where I've been getting a lot of the talk about the voices that aren't being represented in this movement, and they also focus a lot on the traditional practices as well, and they really help to, to shape a picture that isn't just this like whitewashed wealthy science perspective. They're a resource that's really putting forward some other perspectives that um, need to be on the table. Um, so those are kind of some of the main websites. Oh, and then I, MAPS. Um, MAPS is one of the uh, organizations doing the PTSD MDMA research, um, as well as some other projects, MDMA being their big one. But if you go on the MAPS website, I believe maps.org, their resource section has like hundreds of websites that they have put together in one place that can really point you in a, in a lot of directions. Um, and I just want to mention, uh, you know, one book that really talks about integration. Um, I haven't read the whole book yet, but I've had so many different people recommend this book and, uh, it's, it's on my shelf just waiting to be read and it's called after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and you know, for, for people that have had a transformative spiritual experience, but then you sober up and you come back down to reality and you still go about your day and you still are f faced with the injustice in the world. You know, how do you cope with that? So um, that's a book that, you know, kind of gets to some of those issues that uh, I've, I've heard as a valuable resource. And the, the little bit that I've read has been helpful for me as well. Yeah, Jack Cornfield's the author and I, I heard lots of good stuff by him as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So there's one thing I've been asking everybody at the end of these podcasts, and it's just a simple question, but maybe a complex one. If you could just say one thing, maybe it's a Facebook status, or maybe you've taken an airplane and written it in the sky, or maybe it's uh, you told some alien friends to beam it down into a crop circle. If you could just say one thing to all of humanity, what would that be? <laughs> Close your eyes. Imagine how fucking freaked out people would be to read that. <laughs> so, and, uh, I'll elaborate. I'll elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, close your eyes. So when I was at the Psychedelic Science Conference in California last year, um, there was a researcher named James Fadiman who was doing LSD research before it became illegal. So he's been in the psychedelic science world before Prohibition and <laughs> in this, like, stream leading out of Prohibition. Um, and, you know, one of the things he said was 
he feels that there were a lot of hippies in like the first psychedelic mm-hmm. wave that did psychedelics in the party scene. They kept their eyes open the whole time. They see the colors changing. They get lost in the patterns on the wall, which can be really cool. You know, you see a fractal pattern on your curtain and you're like, whoa, fractals, bro. But the real magic lies in being still, closing your eyes, and going inside of yourself. So true. And that's where these substances are, I think, the most promising is their ability to direct us into a into a place inside of ourselves that can be difficult to access because we haven't been culturally trained on self-reflection and on re- deep meditation. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because this came up at a family gathering last year at Christmas. So we're sitting around and my cousin is doing uh, film studies in Toronto and she's doing her graduate work and she's making a documentary on uh, treating mental health issues, particularly depression, through alternate means and not relying on conventional medicine. So she's looking at everything from diet and nutrition, meditation, and even psychedelics. So we started talking about psychedelics with the family and a lot of people in the room you did acid in the 60s, you know, like some of my aunts and uncles and my stepdad, like they've, they've dabbled in their younger years. But the, the frameworks we have now about these things weren't around for them then, you know, harm reduction, integration, peer support, drug testing, um, an actual scientific understanding of what's happened. Those things weren't even part of their frameworks at all. So they're, they, they're just like... How, how how is this going to treat depression? Like, they just don't get it. And one of my uncles said something really snarky about just being a hippie and, and taking psychedelics. And I was like, actually, I use psychedelics to go deep inside myself and confront my limitations and my biases and my insecurities and release what no longer serves me. Boom. <laughs> His jaw just dropped, you know, because that... <clears throat> that generation doesn't have those critical self-reflection skills. They don't have the, you know, the, the comfort to dive inside themselves and analyze the aspects of themselves that they want to change or that they're not happy with. And, you know, so that's my take home message, you know, is, is if you're going to dive into this experience, Close your eyes. I'm so glad you elaborated. Justin, it's been awesome having you on on the podcast here. And I love you lots. Love you too. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions for the podcaster today, send an email to questionjcp at gmail.com. That's Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N-J-C-P at gmail.com. 